First question on Genesis. Okay, uh, Dr. Ishmael, we were going through there and going through all this with Joseph, and uh, you know when when he reveals himself to his brothers, and then he says in verse five uh, for them not to be distressed or angry uh, because you sold me here, but God sent me here to preserve your life, and on and on. It's really clear, and Joseph's going to repeat this later in Genesis, that they sinned, but God not only knew it, it's real clear God ordained it to bring good about. Mm -hmm. So, as you know, this gives some people lots of problems mm -hmm. on does that make God guilty of sin? Because he ordained that these things would take place in his providential sovereignty. And so I know, you know, the, the 1689 uses the terms of God not being the author or signer of sin. But, but how, do, how, how do you answer people who look at, uh, again, the real clear language that sin happened, God knew it, and God directed it. Mm -hmm. How is then God not accountable Yes. Okay. Um, in the universe that God has created, we have the primary cause and secondary cause. The primary cause is God. The secondary cause is man. So whatever man does, God has assigned blessings and cursings to whatever man does. But God is not culpable for any of the evils that man perpetuates or perpetrates. And we have examples of this in the scripture, examples that are undeniable, where we cannot or would not blame God. In Matthew 4, in the temptations of Christ, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first example, Matthew 4, verse 1. Matthew 4, 1. Who is to be blamed here? Who is culpable here? Matthew 4.1 Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When the devil tempts him, is he sinning? Yes. If Jesus were to sin, would he be blamed for his sin? Yes, but he didn't. And yet here, is the Spirit to be blamed for leading Christ up into the wilderness? No. Mark chapter 1, Mark 1, 12 and 13. Mark 1, 12 and 13. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness... Forty days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. It says in Mark 1.12 that the Spirit impelled him. Yeah. Impelled him. This is close, very close, uh, a term very closely related to the word uh, compelled. To be compelled is to be forced, and he's on that verge of being forced. But it is the Spirit impelling him 
to go into the wilderness. Is the Spirit to be blamed for doing so? No. And Luke 4, Luke 4, 1 and 2. Luke 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days while tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. Once more, we ask, is the Spirit to be blamed for this temptation, for bringing Jesus into a setting of temptation? No. So if God can arrange for the temptation and not be blamed for it, then we have an, an example here of first cause and secondary cause. In this case, the temptations of Christ, the secondary causes would be the devil and Christ, the will of Christ. In the case of the devil, he did sin. In the case of Christ, he did not sin. And in the case of the Holy Spirit, he did not sin. Also, Romans 3. Why does God do this? Why does God do this? Romans 3. 3, 1 to 8. Romans 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe... Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man a liar, as it is written, that you might be justified in your words and might prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do, good, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Amen. He, in verse 3, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Was God good and faithful to, and righteous to deliver the oracles of God to the Jews? Yes. Yes. But some did not believe. Then does that show some deficiency in God? No. His answer is verse 4, no. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man... A liar. Then verse 4, that you might be justified in your words and might prevail when you are judged. Well, who's going to evaluate this and how will this evaluation take place? On the day of judgment. Day of judgment, which he mentions in verse 6. But also verse 5, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. Okay, he's taking these objections one by one and refuting them. The one objection in verse 5 is, listen, we understand what you're teaching, Paul, 
We understand what you're teaching. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, isn't that what God wants? Isn't that a good distinction? That He is shining brightly as the righteous God, the righteous one, and we are dim and dark in our wickedness? So we are unrighteous, He's righteous. God intended for that distinction to be made, and that's good, right? But then why does God inflict wrath? Why does He now punish me for the wickedness that He uses to show His glory? That's the complaint. What's wrong with the complaint? Verse 6, But may it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? The complainer refuses to see that God created the world to prepare it for the day of judgment. The complainer thinks God created the world to shower His love on everyone equally. That God loves everyone equally. God wants everyone equally to be saved and go to heaven. They have a false notion of God, that that's the way God is, but He's not that way. He did not create everyone in the world to experience His love to the full and all go to heaven. Right. It's not that way. He created the world to judge the world. So to prepare it for the day of judgment, there must be those who are wicked and their wickedness will be revealed on that day and He will punish them for their wickedness, then His righteousness will shine brightly in contrast to their wickedness. So if God prepared the world to judge the world, it's the world He created. So why are you complaining? That's the point. And also, they complain further, verse 7, But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory... Didn't he create the world for his glory? Yes. But my lie made the truth of God abound to his glory. Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? That's the complaint expressed in a different way. The same complaint. And then they say, verse 8, And why not? Let us do evil that good may come. Why not? If my evil is going to make God's glory more bright then let me just do evil. And actually, Apostle Paul, you apostles, you're teaching this. That's what they're saying. Yeah. But that's not the case. It's slander to say the apostles are teaching, do evil that good may come. Amen. No. Whatever the revealed will of God is, repent, believe, obey, whatever that will of God is, that's what we are obligated to do. Now, when we do not do it, God uses it to glorify Himself. Just like the sons or brothers of Joseph, sons of Jacob. God uses the evil to glorify Himself. He's not going to be the one who is caught short-handed. He's not going to be caught uh, without the ample means of turning sin or evil into good for His good. He's going to accomplish that. And that's the purpose here. He created the world to prepare it for the day of judgment. All of us are lost or dead in trespasses and sins. Some of us are then delivered from that. And God receives glory from our deliverance. 
the rest of mankind remain in their darkness, in their depravity, in their deadness, and God is glorified by that too. When they remain in their wickedness, on the day of judgment, he'll be glorified because of their wickedness. When we are redeemed, and redeemed by the righteousness of Christ, the blood of Christ reckoned to us, when that happens on the day of judgment, God will be glorified by our redemption. He's glorified both ways. Then, Romans 9. Romans 9, 14 to 24. Romans 9, 14. After explaining that God loved Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob, but he hated Ishmael, Hagar, and Esau. Not all of them are named, but either explicitly or implicitly, they are the, the people in view here. In Romans 9, 6 to 13. And then when he says in 13, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, the, the complainer here, the objector here, understands the implication. So the apostle anticipates their objection in verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have. Have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. This answer to the injustice of God is. Basically, it all depends on the will of God. Right. If it depends on the will of God, there can be no injustice. That's the fundamental point of verses 14 to 18. If it depends on the will of God, then there is absolutely no way anybody can charge God with injustice. But also, Moses was taught this, that it depended only on God's will. And notice, I will have mercy on whom? I will have compassion on whom? And verse 18, he has mercy on whom? He hardens whom he desires. It's all on God's will to some. Some receive mercy, others receive hardness or justice. But people are still unsatisfied with that. Of course. So the next objection is verse 19. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels 
of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. This next objection, why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault for who resists his will? Why does he still find fault? We notice that the objector um, disdains to say God or Lord, refers to him just in the third person, he. Why does he do that? I think he's being sarcastic and spiteful here. The objector is being sarcastic and spiteful. Why does he find fault? Answer me now, Paul. Why does he still find fault? And also, you're saying nobody resists his will. So I'm going to throw that back at you. For who resists his will? Now you deal with that, Paul. But Paul the Apostle, he doesn't back off. He doesn't withdraw an inch. He says, on the contrary, who are you? Yeah. On the contrary, the, the direct opposite, who are you smashing to smithereens the pride of man? Who are you? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, right. you're a man. You're a created being, and you think you're wiser than God? You're more just than God, more righteous than God, better than God? Who answers back to God? You deserve a slap in the face. You're answering back to God. This is like uh, a pesky, unruly child, little child, answering back to the parents. They deserve a slap in the face. Who answers back to God? To God. The God that you refuse to name in verse 19. Then the illustration. Will the thing molded say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Have you ever heard a piece of pottery complain to the potter? Why did you make me like this? You made me like this so that now I am in the pauper's house. I didn't want to be made like this. I wanted to be a symbol of luxury inside the wealthy man's house. But you put me in the poor man's house because of the thing that you made me to be. I object. I would rather be on display on the mantle of the rich man's mansion. Does the potter ever do that? No. But people will say, but we're not potters. I mean, we're not clay and all that. Correct. Literally, we're not clay, but in terms of the spiritual truth, we are clay. The Bible is calling us clay. So in terms of the spiritual truth, we are clay. But those who deny the free will of God and believe in the free will of man will say, what, we're machines? What, we're robots? <laughs> what, we're, we, God created us like this, that we have no will? Uh, are, you, is that, are we puppets? Right. You, that's their way of throwing filth onto the true doctrine of God. Okay. The Bible doesn't call us machine, robots, or puppets, but it does call us clay. And actually, clay is of less value in many ways than 
a robot, no doubt. a machine, and even a puppet. At least a puppet can make people laugh. <laughs> a clay is in many ways less useful than these other objects. And this is the one illustration that the Apostle used by the Holy Spirit to explain our relationship to our Maker, the potter. And he refused, the complainer refuses to understand that the potter, verse 21, has a right over the clay. He has a right. He is the potter. He can do whatever he wants. And the purpose has a dual outcome, verses 22 to 24. Vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy. And both are for the glory of God. And the vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath are mixed groups. The vessels of mercy have Jews and Gentiles, and the vessels of wrath have Jews and Gentiles. Right. And it all depends on God's will. Ultimately, on God's will. Not denying that men make choices, they have a will, they decide things. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about whose will is superior, who wins, who gets what he wants. God does. Then, a further objection may be, well, that's unfair. I still don't like it. <laughs> okay? They say it's unfair and they don't like it because they think that if they had wisdom as much as God, they would do it better. They would do it in a different way. So, next time somebody objects like that, ask the individual, how would you do it? What's the better way? You tell me. And most of the time, you will get complete silence. They don't know. Or if they say, well, I, I just want to make sure we all experience the love of God and we all go to heaven. Okay, if they say that, our rejoinder would be, but you, don't you love free will? How is God going to ensure that everybody goes to heaven that we don't sin or sin in such an in a egregious way or uh, sin in unbelief, not believing in Christ. How is God going to ensure that none of that happens, that we all make it to heaven, except that he has to violate our free will? But you say you love free will. Do you love it or not? Your definition of free will. Do you love it or not? You see how their world cannot exist? They have no way of making their world exist. Also, if they hate original sin, if they hate original sin, the doctrine of original sin, that is, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, their first sin, Adam's sin, plunged us all into sin, evil, misery, and death. Okay? His one sin. That's not fair. Well, that assumes that if that individual, the complainer, were in the garden, he would have been successful. Well, who thinks that way except a proud man? A proud man would say, well, if I were in the garden, I wouldn't have done what Adam did. Also, if they don't like the curse on Adam that spread to all of us, why don't they ever complain about the blessings of Adam that spread and Adam's descendants that spread to all of us? They never complain about that. Well, I, I hate God because I was born in a rich family. I hate God because I was born in a mansion. 
I hate God because I was born with many, many skills. My mind is very active. I'm a prodigy. I, everything I touch, I succeed at. I hate God for that. Does anybody ever do that? No. So they, they themselves don't understand justice because they'll blame God for whatever they don't like, but they'll never praise God for whatever blessings they experience, whether innate blessings or external blessings. They never, they never thank God. So it shows that they are professing to be wise. They became fools. Okay, does that answer you? Okay. Okay, time well, I, for... I just want to say this as a side. Yes. Uh, white males are supposed to be bothered that they have blessings. Oh, okay. white males are supposed to be bothered? No, actually, in, in, the, in the month of... of um, I, I'm offended because this is the month of February, February, and I am I am brown. I'm dark brown, and we don't have whether in this country or any country that I know of, Brown History Month, Dark Brown History Month. Why don't we have Dark Brown History Month? I'm offended. You people must be racists. Is it true in a sense that uh, I know you were saying it, which is true that symbolically we're clay, but we were actually literally formed out of the dirt. Okay, yes, yes. And we return to it. So we are, in a literal sense, dirt. Yes. In, in that way as well. Correct, yes. In the literal sense, we are also clay. Well, Genesis 2-7, <laughs> Genesis 2-7, and Genesis 3-17-19. We were made of dust, and we shall return to dust. So in the literal sense, too. It's inescapable. Yeah. Yeah. We are that way physically and spiritually. And that was intentional, right? Because yes. he had all of creation that he could have made man out of. Yes. Right? He didn't carve him out of a tree. Correct. Right? He made him out of dirt intentionally to teach this truth mm -hmm. and to teach our return to the, our death. Yes. So that, which means our life is not our own. So that would be the lesson. Our life is not our own. It belongs to God. He can do whatever He wants. He appoints the day of our birth and the day of our death. He appoints it. Yeah. Right? And when He created, I mean, when He created Adam, He was already anticipating His death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Right? Because of the way He created him. So it was already in the mind of God. Sin, death, entering into the world for this greater purpose. Yes. It was in the mind of God for sin and evil and death to enter into the world. We know that it was in the mind of God because from the mouth of God to the ears of Adam. For example, Genesis 2, Genesis 2, verse 9. 2-9. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is Moses, by the Holy Spirit, telling us he created these trees. God created these trees, correct? Before he created man. Then, verse 15, I said, from the mind of God or mouth of God to the ears of Adam. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. 
Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Both verses 9 and 17 mention evil before there was any evil. Right. Adam didn't think of it. God thought of it. And he spoke of it to Adam. And he anticipated evil and death because he says, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. These are not surprises to God. They are in the purpose of God. But yet he doesn't mention the tree of life when he talks to Adam. He does not mention the tree of life? I mean, I mean telling him not to touch it or anything. But if Adam had grabbed that fruit first. Yes. That, now, that's a hypothetical if he had. Yes, he, he did not tell him not to touch or partake of the tree of life. Correct. Yes. In Genesis 42, earlier you read Genesis 42, uh, 38, where Jacob, their father, said to them, You bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. Now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Knowing that by this point they have repented, Joseph tested them, they were honest men now, and then seeing that Jacob has said this, would they have confessed to Jacob what they had done to Joseph? At any point, does, do in their repentance, do they confess to Jacob, you know, we, we did this. We put him in this pit. And then when we went back, he was gone. Or, well, we sold him, right? It's proven found that he's gone. But we sold him to slavery. We don't know where he's at. We faked his death. And then they just, over time, assume that, well, he hasn't come back to us, so he must, he, he must be dead. You know, probably typically slaves... So don't live very long. So they, do, we, do we have any idea? And, and the only reason I ask is because he said, you've bereaved me and my children. And then he includes Joseph in, in, in that area. Yes, it might have been that they told him something. That's why he's saying is no more. And Simeon is basically initially in the same predicament Joseph was in. Uh, kept as a prisoner and slave and never to see his father again. So it's likely that they did tell him something about it and that now he's about to lose his third one. Well, isn't that the case, though? For, for someone to repent, we would need to... Confess. Confess that, because they sinned against mm -hmm. their father. Correct. Yes. So for true repentance to take place, whatever sin was committed against another, that sin has to be revealed. It has to be openly confessed that that's what was done. Yes. Because otherwise, they, this whole time, they'd be living in deception to their father. Anytime their father talked about, right. you know, the loss of Joseph, they'd, oh, yeah, well, that, was, that was really a bad thing. You know, they would have to continue to conceal it and be deceptive in that if it wasn't out in the open and confessed. Yes. And then they would have to have their father 
live with that deception until he died. Right. Which wouldn't be loving. Wouldn't be honoring your father. No, it would not be honoring your father. Okay, another one? Uh, it was about the previous topic. That's okay, yes. Um, we'll, close, we'll, we'll close with your question so, or comment about the previous topic. Um, Isaiah 45, uh, 8 10, especially verse 9 and 10, which I think seems to be what Paul is quoting, right, in, in Romans 9. It says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth, uh, will the clay save the father? What are you doing? The thing you're making, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, To what are you giving birth? For me, when I was, this was the passage that really solidified it in my mind because I realized what he's saying is that it is, it is just as absurd for, as if, as if we would say that God asked Adam's permission to create him. You know, he, God doesn't ask, he doesn't ask someone who, comes into existence, do I have my permission to create you from non-existence into existence? That's, that's obviously absurdity. It's just as absurd for us to demand God ask us permission for salvation, as if he, he has to have the permission of the sinner hmm. to create a new heart in him. Hmm. Yes, that's good. It's absurd to ha- have the, the clay and even the child challenge the parents why did you create me? So why would it, that be the case in recreation? Right. If creation didn't happen that way, why should recreation happen that way? And recreation is more important than creation. Um, also, th- there actually was, I saw a, a headline, I read the article too, about a year or two ago. There was a man in this era of, of divisiveness, of, of tyranny and communism uh, creating divisions in societies all over the world. Um, female against male, children against parents, poor against the rich, so on. Um, black against white. Whenever they do that, they're doing that on purpose because they want chaos and division and death. But there was a man, a grown man, something like... Uh, maybe 30 years old, he, was, he uh, wa- filed a lawsuit against his parents for begetting him into this world. He filed a lawsuit against his parents for begetting him. Did the judge say death penalty right there? Uh, that, that was only at the beginning. I don't know what, <laughs> what happened. I didn't follow that case, but he actually complained. So if you think about it, this is the, the height of arrogance for any child to do that for any child, and a, a misunderstanding of free will. Evil, evil. And, e- and evil. He should be executed for saying that. And evil. And he should be what? Executed for doing that. Executed for doing it. Why do you say he should be executed? Because uh, the, if, the, if a child um, you know, dishonors his father and mother, slept in a Oh, yes. His father and mother. I see, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. Yeah, he should be executed for that. Because the one who dishonors his father or mother should be put to death. Now, who said that? It would be, it would be Christ. Christ in Matthew 15. 15, 4. For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil 
of father or mother, let him be put to death. Christ said that in Matthew 15, verse 4. And he's citing Exodus 20, 12 and 21, 17. So yes, you're right. He should be put to death. It's showing that he wants to do that to God. That's what it's showing. Right. He hates the one, his, his parents and authority who begat him. He's hating the creator who created them. He's hating the creator who created them. Ultimately, he has to put the blame on God. Because his parents did not have the ultimate will to create his existence. Because what if the father were impotent and the mother were barren? One or the other. Then he wouldn't have come into the world. But God set it up perfectly and made sure that he was conceived and came into the world. 